Welcome to Building the Future. I'm your host, Kevin Horick. You can check out the radio version of the show every Tuesdays and Thursdays at 2 p.m. Eastern on WDJY 99.1 in Atlanta. We also air on a podcasting network in Los Angeles called the 405 Media. There's a TV version of the show that airs on KMVT 15 in Silicon Valley at 8 p.m. Pacific on Tuesday nights. Both versions of the show air in other states. For these show times plus past episodes, please visit the show's website at buildingthefutureshow.com. The music for the show is done by Electric Mantra. You can check them out at electricmantra.com. Join me at the 10th Annual Media Excellence Awards on January 18th in Beverly Hills, California. The attendees and I will be celebrating innovation and leadership in technology and entertainment. There are 20 award categories with 1,000 nominees. These awards honor those who are creating groundbreaking technology to better our lives and celebrate the hard work, determination, and brilliance in the leadership within the companies which create the new world we live in today. I will be recording nominees and winners at the awards. For tickets and more information, go to MediaXAwards.com. Welcome back to the show. Today we have Dylan Ruga. He's a trial lawyer at Stalwart Law Group. Dylan, welcome to the show. Thanks, Kevin. Glad to be here. Yeah, I'm excited to have you on the show. I, I, I think what you what you do is actually kind of really interesting and kind of my audience can really kind of benefit from getting kind of your advice and thoughts and kind of your experience. You've you've done a lot of really cool things and, um, you know, kind of helped a lot of people kind of on the, on the legal front of things. And, you know, I, just being working at a startup myself, I, I very much understand how important having kind of legal when you need it or even when you don't need it is very important. So I, I appreciate you taking the time out of your, your day to be on the show. But maybe before we kind of get into what you kind of do day to day, let's get to know you a little bit better and start off with where you grew up. Sure. Yeah, I grew up in, uh, in San Francisco, uh, went to school, uh, high school and elementary school in San Francisco, and then uh, left to go to a small uh, liberal arts college in Ohio called Oberlin College. Okay. Uh, and, and I went there. Um, strangely enough, I was recruited to play baseball there, so I started off playing baseball and then wound up uh, playing some football as well. Uh, and I uh, really kind of enjoyed being uh, at a smaller school um, out in the Midwest. And then uh, when I graduated, I moved down to Los Angeles, I, I thought, um, just to go to law school. So I, I went to law school down in L.A. and uh, started at Loyola Law School, where I went for my first year, and then transferred over to UCLA, where I finished. Uh, and uh, then following law school, I, I stayed in L.A., and I, I've been here since. Okay, so what made you want to go into law? Was there kind of like a defining moment growing up, or, or how did you kind of get into it? You know, I, I wish I can say that there was a, uh, a specific moment in my life where I kind of had the epiphany that I, I wanted to be a lawyer, maybe because I saw some grave injustice or something. It, it, it just didn't happen that way for me. It was um, something that I've known that I've wanted to do since as far back as I can remember, and I really don't know why that is. It just always was that way. And uh, ever since I was, you know, um, before high school, people would ask me what I want to be, uh, and I'd say a lawyer. And um, it's just been it's just been that way. No, that's cool, man. Like I I love those kind of stories where you just kind of fall in love with something for 
some reason in your childhood and you know you just kind of go for it and you you become that I, I think that's great so walk me through you you graduate university you've worked at a bunch of kind of firms walk us through kind of your journey up into the company you're at now sure so uh following law school i uh, i worked with a federal court judge for a year as his clerk uh and okay. kind of gained uh really valuable insights from being um on the other side of the bench and and seeing kind of what goes on behind the scenes um, from a judge's perspective uh so I, doing after doing that for a year i went into private practice and um i was at a uh, a mid-sized firm for a year and then it uh, disbanded and i went to um, a large international firm uh, where I was uh, just kind of a junior associate uh, starting off in my career and worked my way up the ranks and made partner uh, a few years ago. And um, that's always kind of the dream as uh, an associate at a big firm is to make partner. And so sure. I, I got there. I got there and was partner for a few years and then realized um, that uh, it just wasn't for me. Okay, so walk me through how you got to um, Stalwart and uh, kind of what you do there. Sure. So um, I decided uh, after realizing that I, I really didn't enjoy being a partner at a, at a big firm, I decided to resign my partnership and um, kind of hang up a shingle. And so uh, I was fortunate that I was able to do that. A lot of people, um, you know, get used to big firm salaries, especially uh, once you make partner, it's, uh, you can li live a very comfortable life. And so it's, it's difficult to kind of walk away from that. But, sure. um, you know, I really had two things um, going for me that allowed me to make that jump. And, and the first is uh, that my wife uh, also is a lawyer and uh, she also is a partner at a, at a big firm. And so she provided that type of uh, stability for me. That's great. Uh, and secondly, yeah, yeah, it's, it's wonderful. And, and secondly, um, I had some clients who were uh, very loyal and who, uh, you know, I knew would support me during the first year of, of the firm. Sure. So walk me through exactly kind of what uh, Stalwart Law Group kind of does on, on a day-to-day -day basis, because you guys do stuff in a bunch of different kind of legal verticals, but walk us through kind of generally what you do, and then we'll kind of get into more specifically what you do. Yeah, sure. So we do uh, only litigation work. Okay. Uh, which means that, yeah, we don't do any type of transactional um, uh, transactional work, which means kind of putting together agreements or doing deals. Uh, we only get involved when uh, people uh, are, you know, suing other people or in, in some type of dispute. And so the type of litigation that we do um, varies. I do uh, mostly um, general commercial litigation, which is anything from, you know, partnership disputes to breach, breaches of contract to any type of business disputes. I also do a fair amount of uh, IP litigation and counseling uh, and uh, some legal malpractice work. Uh, other people in my firm do employment uh, litigation and personal injury litigation. And, um, you know, that's really about it. We don't do any type of family law or, or tax related issues or, or things kind of outside of what I've just described. Sure. So, Walk me through kind of a typical, well, probably week or month for you. Like what types of stuff kind of come across your desk and are you kind of working on, right? Because I think 
as kind of a trial lawyer, sometimes it's got to be like really, really kind of exciting and you're, and you're probably working on some really interesting stuff. Uh, yeah, every day is different, that's for sure. Um, right now, uh, I'm working on um, I'm working on a case that's going to bring me out to Hong Kong and Asia in, wow. in a few weeks. So that's that's pretty interesting. It, sure. it, uh, the the case itself involves uh, some furniture that was uh, manufactured for a uh, pretty well known celebrity here in the states, and, okay. and that celebrity uh, created a furniture line and hired my client to help manufacture that furniture. And when the furniture was delivered. Um, uh, they were uh, not pleased with, with what they got. And so the dispute is whether, you know, the furniture came back as ordered or, or whether it wasn't. And um, so, you know, in representing my client, I uh, have to, you know, take depositions and defend depositions. And some of the people with knowledge are, are located out in Hong Kong and uh, in China, where I'll be going in, in just a few weeks to, to take care of that. So that's one uh, case I'm working on right now. And another case um, that's taken up a bunch of my time is a uh, is an, an appeal of a uh, trademark related uh, case that we won uh, here in the trial court and federal court uh, about a year or two ago on behalf of a, a startup. And um, uh, we, so we won the case, and now the other side is appealing it to the Ninth Circuit, which is the appellate court, and we are working on the Ninth Circuit brief to kind of defend our, our victory. Sure. No, that's great. So I, I'm curious then, because you guys obviously, you just mentioned with the furniture company that you guys kind of obviously do stuff cross countries and cross ocean kind of stuff. How does that kind of work? Because... In, I've heard kind of the horror story side of that, and I'm sure people have too, where it, it, it can be really tricky to kind of get justice when somebody either rips you off or doesn't deliver what they say on, especially when it's in a, a totally different country. Like, how do you guys kind of handle that? Yeah, so um, particularly when you're talking about intellectual property laws, um, they vary pretty widely uh, okay. in different countries. Asia, uh, in particular, China has been known for a long time to kind of be the the wild 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 west, so to speak, uh, in terms of uh, IP protection. In the sense that um, there really has been no meaningful protection in China for for a long time. But that is uh, it's actually getting better, um, and you know the Chinese government is beginning to to take notice and and stop kind of the the more flagrant. Um, infringement practices that have been going on out there, but the reality is, uh, you know, it's always better to uh, try to enforce your IP here in the states rather than uh, going abroad and, and and trying to enforce it uh, under other countries' uh, laws. Got you. Okay. So, walk. How does it kind of work? Because the the thing that I think a lot of people struggle with, especially if they're a startup or in technology, maybe they're not. Maybe they're making some money, but, you know, they're not like super wealthy yet or or whatnot. And, and something happens where they need somebody like yourself. Like at what point do you bring on, you know, somebody like yourself or, or what things can you kind of start to do maybe before they bring on somebody like yourself? Yeah, well, it's uh, kind of like you mentioned at the beginning. You, you never kind of want a lawyer until you need one. Uh, sure. And so it's important to have, uh, you know, people that you know and trust uh, who can help you out at the beginning. In, in relation to startups, um, it's really important to 
speak with a transactional lawyer, which is, again, not something that we do, but um, something that startups should do in order to properly um, you know, form the startup from the beginning and, and get, the, get the company a, a solid foundation. And um, once you have that relationship with a transactional attorney who can kind of help you through that process, if and when you get into uh, any type of dispute, that lawyer uh, should be able to refer you over to a litigator like myself. Um, that being said, we uh, also work a lot with uh, startups uh, on the IP side, okay. and we have um, we understand that startups don't really have a lot of cash to uh, to burn on legal, um, and so we have just recently kind of launched a, a product at, at our firm. Uh, where we are offering essentially an alternative to trademark uh, insurance uh, where uh, startups can come to, to the firm and talk to us about uh, the trademarks that they are considering using. And we will um, take a look at what they're doing and then in exchange for some amount of equity uh, up front, meaning at this point, we will um, help you obtain your trademark registrations and, and get you through that process. And then if the startup is ever sued for trademark infringement, we will defend the startups uh, and not charge any legal fees. Oh, interesting. So we'll yeah, we'll, we'll absorb the risk of, of that type of litigation. Sure. So what kind of startups do you guys kind of look for if somebody's looking to, because they're basically pitching you, fair? Yeah, sure. I mean, we, we uh, talk to a lot of them, um, okay. and it just depends what they're looking for. I mean, so, look, um, on, the, on the IP side, when, um, you know, trademarks are really important for startups for a, a whole host of reasons, but sure. um, a lot of startups will pick a name that um, they think, you know, describes their product pretty well, and from a marketing perspective, that may be a good idea because, um, you know, kind of brings to mind um, what your product is and it kind of helps people when you don't have any brand recognition kind of identify what it is that you're, you're selling or providing. But from a trademark perspective, um, you know, a descriptive uh, name or mark like that usually doesn't give very much protection. And so we can kind of, um, you know, work with the startups to counsel them in the right direction of, of how to get a, a bit more trademark protection. The other side of it is startups that we see um, oftentimes um, rush to uh, pick a name without um, really taking the time to see if it's available. And sure. what happens is that they invest a lot of time and money in building up the, the brand and the goodwill, and, and they spend a lot of money purchasing maybe a, a URL to acquire their website, and, and they do all this. And then, you know, 6, 12, 18 months later, they get a cease and desist letter from another company that they've never heard of, but that claims rights in their trademark. And then at that point, um, you know, the company needs to decide whether to, to fight that claim and start investing a bunch of money in, in litigation or whether just to, you know, drop the name and pick a new one. And that, and that can be pretty difficult if you've already invested a lot in, in, the, name, in the name that you chose. Sure. So. Do you look for kind of more software-based, hardware software-based, or is it because I, I guess why I ask that is because software, I think, is kind of hard to trademark. Is that kind of fair to say? Um, you know, I'm not so sure it is. I, I think okay. that, you know, if, if, yeah, it depends what type of software it is you're offering, right? Like, obviously, 
you know, the big software platforms that you think of, Adobe and Microsoft and things like that. Yeah. Um, all of that, all, all of that uh, software is uh, trademarked, all of those names and brands. Sure. Um, so we really don't, um, really don't discriminate in terms of what type of startups uh, we're working with. Well, all, okay. all we're looking, um, you know, all we're looking for is, you know, startups that are serious about what they're doing and, um, you know, really want to make sure that they, um, you know, are smart about their trademark selection up front. Sure. So is there, though, there's got to be some startups or maybe industries that people work in that are probably have a higher chance of potentially needing your services at some point. And so how do you kind of decide, like, you know what, guys, I don't know if it really makes sense to work together because I don't think you'll ever need us or, oh, it very much maybe makes sense to work with you guys or like us because, you know, you probably will get have some sort of, you know, issues down the road kind of on, in the legal front. Is that do you guys kind of work through that with kind of people that are coming in to say like, hey, we, we might need you guys. Like, how do you guys kind of balance that? So it's not so much what, uh, you know, what type of product or service that the startup is working on as much as it is, um, you know, how far along in the process they are, right? So a, a startup where, where you just kind of have two friends getting together, you know, with an idea and, you know, they want to start a company. If they came to, to us, I'd probably say, you know, guys, uh, you know, you're smart to think about these things, but maybe it's a little bit too early. Why don't you kind of get it fur further along before you uh, really come talk to us and before, we, you know, it makes sense for us to help you out. On the other hand, um, you know, the startups that typically run into problems are the startups that, um, you know, get venture capital and funding from some source. And once, once they kind of get that funding and that funding becomes public, um, it's amazing how quickly uh, people come out of the woodwork and, and claim, you know, prior rights in the names and, and things like that. So um, it's really kind of, you know, the, the startups that have, uh, you know, made it far enough along that they have some funding or backup, you know, from investors that are going to really start to need our services more than others. I got you. Okay. So what is the process kind of like if I have something that somebody claims that it was theirs or they own part of it. What is the kind of the process? Like I, I get it's probably different for um, kind of depending on what it is, but is there kind of a general process of how this kind of works? Just because I'm kind of curious to know just if anybody's kind of going through this or going to go through this in the future, kind of what, what can they kind of expect from the whole process of kind of somebody makes a claim saying, you know, you're using my name and I've owned it for decade or, or whatever like how does that kind of work what's the process around that well you know each case is each case is different and sure. so you know i'll start by saying that but i mean generally um we will if, if we're on the receiving end of a uh of a letter like that we will obviously in, investigate uh investigate the claims and um see if there's any merit to it and so one way to do that is to look into um you know this plaintiff's um, you know, allegations and, and see if they really had been using the mark for as long as they said they've been using the mark. And then um, if they have, then you look for other defenses that, that you may have. So you may be able to argue that their mark is invalid for a variety of reasons. And, and um, some of those reasons may be because, 
you know, their mark is generic or their mark, um, you know, is descriptive, and, and we don't believe that they can show something called secondary meaning, which, which is a fancy word for meaning that nobody in the public associates uh, that mark with that particular company or producer. Um, and so there are uh, other kind of legal defenses that we will explore, and then, um, you know, we'll consult with the client and let them know that, you know, this is a problem. Uh, you've got to do something about it or not, and if it's a problem, then, you know, the ways to address it are, um, you know, again, either by changing the name or by, um, you know, getting involved in litigation, or maybe there's a compromise solution where you can reach a licensing deal or agree that, um, for example, you can continue using the name of the company in exchange for either a license fee or some sort of, uh, some sort of equity in the company. Sure. No, that, that makes a lot of sense. So we, we've covered a lot of kind of technology and startups, but you have done stuff in kind of a bunch of other fields. You kind of mentioned furniture, but what other kind of industries have you kind of done cases or, or like working in if you have the option to work in those uh, verticals? Um, yeah, so over the years, I've really uh, done a lot of, a lot of real estate uh, disputes, um, done a lot of partnership disputes, where, okay. you know, and partnership disputes t- tend to um, get pretty messy because, um, you know, being in a partnership with somebody is um, kind of like being in a marriage, and when those things go south, um, you know, there's a lot of emotions involved, and, and um, partnership agreements aren't always as clear as they should be, and, and so there's just a lot of finger pointing, and, and um, those cases um, uh, just get pretty messy. Um, so we've done a lot of those, um, which, uh, you know, I enjoy. Um, done a fair amount of entertainment-related work and okay. working with, uh, you know, some of the better-known celebrities and talent uh, out here in Los Angeles. and. That type of work is, um, you know, it's interesting because you're dealing with people uh, that you read about in, in the press. But, sure. um, you know, the, the reality is is that the legal issues uh, are the same. And uh, sometimes dealing with talent and um, their team uh, isn't as easy as, as dealing with, for example, you know, a, a sophisticated corporate client. Ah, uh, yeah, fair enough, I suppose, right? Because, and I, I don't mean it mean, but like, if you're, I don't know, like a movie star or something, you might not be the most business savvy, right? Like, it's just because that's not what you went to school with, that's not what you do, right? So I, I, I could see that, that makes sense. Yeah, it's not just about not being uh, business savvy, it's, okay. uh, which is part of it. It's also, um, you know, largely, number one, being used to uh, getting what you want and, and having people uh, around you that sure. uh, tend to say yes a lot. And sometimes as, as a lawyer, you need to be the person in the room that, that says no to the client uh, and to have those, those type of difficult discussions that, um, you know, movie stars aren't, aren't used to having. Um, and, and there's also a problem of, you know, just being busy. I mean, uh, sometimes it's, it's pretty difficult to, um, you know, just have the type of contact with uh, those type of clients um, whereas, you know, kind of the more traditional, sophisticated corporate clients are, are pretty easy to reach. Yeah, sure. And I guess because, like, people are traveling a bunch and, and whatnot. So mm-hmm. do you guys, I, I know you also have an office in New York, correct? Uh, we do, yeah. So you guys kind of do mostly stuff in kind of New York and California. I, I know you're doing some stuff overseas right away, but, like, 
do you guys kind of try to focus in those geographical regions or do you kind of do stuff across the states and kind of beyond or where do you guys kind of like to work? Yeah, I mean, I'd say, look, the, the vast majority of our cases uh, today are in California and New York. New York we do okay. have, um, yeah, we do have some cases in other parts of the country. Um, you know, I can think of a case we're handling at the moment in uh, North Dakota and another one in, in New Jersey. And so there are some in other parts of the country. But, um, you know, we have boots on the ground in California and New York. And so that's where the majority of our business happens to happens to land. Sure. And I, especially, I guess, if you're doing a lot of technology stuff, like you're kind of in the heart of it between kind of San Francisco and L.A. Like I, I get that there's other parts in the country, but you can't really argue that like between Silicon Valley and I, I know like they, they call it like Silicon Beach and kind of Santa Monica, Venice area that like you guys are basically in the heart of kind of the, the technology kind of, you know, state, right? Not saying New York isn't, yeah. but they're, you know, they're probably in the top two or three. Um, there's a handful of really good startup scenes kind of across across America. But just kind of for the listener to understand kind of where you, you traditionally kind of practice, I, I think makes a lot of sense. So I, I'm curious, though, to dive into a little bit other kind of um, kind of typical cases that, you know, you maybe enjoy doing or, or kind of stuff that you, you've dived into. I, I think, we, you know, we've talked some kind of IP and trademarky stuff and kind of some furniture stuff, but... How much kind of maybe like hardware or I, I know just kind of just when I was doing a little bit of research for the show, you've done kind of some stuff around photography and, and fabric designs and stuff like that. Walk me through kind of some of the other types of litigation work and kind of trial stuff that you've done in, in the past that you guys kind of have done, just so people understand kind of exactly what you guys bring to the table. Sure. So the examples you just mentioned, photography and uh, fabric designs, those are both um, copyright related cases and, okay. and um, you know the photography case was was a really really interesting case where uh, we represented a, um, a photographer who was hired by a, um, a, a shoe company okay. to do some sh- to, to do some shoots that um, and take some photos that were going to be used uh, as part of a marketing campaign for the shoe company and so when that happened you know, there's a license agreement that's entered into between the, the shoe company and the photographer, and the license agreement says that the shoe company can use these photos for, you know, a, a few months in the United States, and, and they pay the photographer for those uses. And what turned up happening is that the shoe company uh, went well beyond the uh, the terms of the license agreement, and gotcha. the way that it was discovered is that the photographer was, you know, on vacation in Europe somewhere and noticed his photos, uh, you know, on a billboard or two, and then started scratching his head and and came to us and really didn't know what was going on other than uh, there were a couple photos uh, that were being used that shouldn't be used, and and through the litigation process, we discovered that you know it was beyond anybody's kind of imagination the extent of this and and you know thousands of uses for many years uh, well beyond the the terms of the, the license and and that was an interesting case because you know the um, photographer uh, you know wound up being able to sue for copyright infringement and uh, breach of the license agreement uh, and you know the shoe company um, their defense was yeah look we made a mistake but 
um, you know, you agreed uh, when we hired you that, you know, for the license for the license term that you agreed to, um, you charged us only X. Uh, and so, yeah, we went beyond that. So maybe we should pay you two times X or three times X. And and um, we were able to, um, you know, basically get get a lot more money for the photographer than he otherwise would have been entitled to. And and um, so that was a very kind of fulfilling uh, case for us. Sure. Um, but we also handled a lot of uh, a lot of employment litigation also uh, on, on the plaintiff side, uh, and employment litigation uh, I also think is is pretty awesome because you're, you're representing people who um, have been you know either discriminated against or harassed uh, at work and, and particularly uh, today with all these allegations coming to light about mm-hmm. you know sexual harassment and other things, um, it, it's really um, an interesting area to practice in because. Um, you know, times are changing and social norms are changing. And, um, you know, what may have been acceptable, you know, five years ago no longer is acceptable in, in, in the workplace and, and just generally in society. And so the law is kind of slowly um, shifting to, you know, take those type of things in, into account. And so it's, it's a very interesting uh, area to practice in, especially today. No, that that makes some, that makes a lot of sense, right? I, I think that's that's fascinating. So, we we kind of you kind of mentioned it quickly earlier. You've done some stuff in kind of the real estate space. W- walk us through maybe like a, an example or two of of kind of what happened there, and you and kind of how you guys handled that. Um, sure. So I can give you um, a couple cases I'm working on right now. Okay. Um, one of them, uh, we represent a, a landlord uh, who own some commercial property here in Los Angeles and um, uh, their tenant was a uh, kind of a well-known pizza franchise uh, and that tenant was there for a number of years and then fell behind uh, in the rent for you know a significant amount of money um, you know somewhere in the six figures and rather than rather than paying uh, the rent and and, uh, making good on its obligation the franchise basically shut down and literally moved uh, across the street to another building and began operating uh, once again across the street. And I so, um, you know, we were, we were kind of brought in in, in that sense to kind of recover the money that was owed from the franchise, but also um, we um, were able to make claims against the franchisor and argue that they were kind of complicit in the scheme to uh, abandon our client's property and go across the street. And sure. um, that was challenging, but also, you know, got a great result there. So that's one type of uh, commercial, you know, real estate dispute. And another one we're working on is, um, you know, where we represent a client that owns uh, some apartment buildings here in uh, LA and um, they wanted to sell the buildings and uh, about a year ago, uh, entered into a uh, an agreement to sell them for a, you know for a price, and the buyer then uh, came back and tried to uh, renegotiate the price after they had a deal, and, and our client said, "Well, no, we're not going to do that. The deal's off." Uh, and um, for whatever, for whatever reason, that was never communicated to the buyer. And you know, since prices uh, in real estate have continued to climb, the buyer sure. comes back six months later and says. Um, you know, uh, you you need to sell me the property. The the contract was never terminated, and so we are now you know fighting that fight and gonna litigate the issue of whether the contract was properly terminated or not. So, 
those are just two examples of kind of what comes up in the in the real estate context for us. Sure. So let's. I'm curious then. So the the pizza joint um, is that mm-hmm. case kind of not necessarily easy, but like it's pretty cut and dry, right? Like they clearly, like at least in my opinion, and, and for just kind of from what you said, like it sounds like they obviously knew what they were doing, right? So is that case like a lot easier to kind of argue and kind of. Like, do they even really have a ground to kind of stand on in, in that sense? Because it's like, clearly, if you didn't pay and you moved across the street, like, you're probably in the wrong. Is that, is that fair to say? Yeah, although, um, you know, they, they made it a little bit more complicated um, because the, the pizza joint, when they were in our client's property, was owned by a husband. And then when they went across the street, they opened the franchise under the wife's name, oh, okay. and then they yeah, and then they claim that you know the husband has no money, and the wife doesn't have to pay for the husband's obligation. Right. And so okay. there was a little bit of you know a little bit of uh, a shell game going on sure. that uh, it, you know it required us to to uncover. Sure, but then but then I would assume that this the the apartment building that you mentioned after that like that's got to be kind of a quite intensive to kind of prove that right and figure that out like that's got to be a more complicated case is that fair to say yeah well it's, it's complicated uh in that you know what, what makes what makes that case uh, particularly complicated is that the uh the agent uh was representing both the buyer uh, okay. and the seller I in that see. case right and so our client tells the agent you know i'm done with the deal and the agent for whatever reason maybe because um, he wanted his commissions on the sale, never communicated to the buyer that the deal was done. Um, and so it, it creates that type of wrinkle. And so each of these cases kind of has its own unique facts and makes it, uh, makes it difficult. You know, the ones that are kind of open and shut slam dunk cases tend to resolve pretty quickly. And, and you know, it's, it's pretty easy to see the writing on the wall. Sure. It's the, no, uh, it's the ones in the gray area that, you know, that get litigated. But I also think that those are probably more fun, especially when you believe that your client is in the right, right? Like if it has to like drag out is the wrong word, but if it has to go on for kind of months, but you know your client's right, especially maybe in the the photographer's case, right? Like that's got to be kind of fun from just kind of your side to work on something like that where you're like, it's clear that this happened, you know, we can prove it. You know, and you feel good about, you know, obviously helping the photographer in this case get his money and what he's rightfully owed. Like that's got to be kind of really fulfilling for you because that that would be for me at least. Yeah, no, it is. It is really fulfilling, um, especially to work with an individual and kind of help an individual, you know, right a wrong, uh, no matter what context. So whether it's a photographer who's been burned or whether it's somebody in the in the workplace has been uh, discriminated against or whether it's, you know, in any context, it's, it, it is really fulfilling to kind of work with individuals. Um, uh, so, yeah, I mean, I think the answer to that is, is yes. And, and, you know, there's also the, the question of litigating on the plaintiff side generally versus on the defense side. And we do do um, both plaintiff work and defense work. And, and on either side, it's interesting um, because each case really is, um, essentially, you're an investigator, and you're investigating the facts. And you, um, you know, we like to kind of 
develop a strategy at the beginning of each case and kind of imagine a, a chessboard and, and thinking two or three moves ahead and, and where we need to end up and how we're going to get there and, and putting you know, those strategies into place um, is what makes it interesting for us. Sure. So how much of your kind of year would you say is actually kind of in court? Is it maybe like a quarter of the time? Is it half the time? How much are you actually kind of like in court kind of either, you know, kind of being arguing for the defense or, or for kind of the, you know, or for either side, I guess. So uh, trial work uh, happens largely not in the trial room. Okay. Uh, and so, you know, the, the, the trial itself, uh, you know, is the culmination usually of, uh, you know, a couple of years worth of, of work on a case. Okay. And so... Um, you know, we handle a few trials a year, um, you know, and each trial can take, you know, uh, a couple weeks or, or more uh, of actually being in the courtroom. And then, um, you know, before you get to trial, uh, you are in court uh, dealing with, uh, you know, motions that are brought up or discovery disputes or, um, you know, pretrial issues that, that happen to arise. But um, I'd say, you know, actually being in a courtroom uh, during the year, I, I don't know, maybe 10 to 20 percent of our years actually spent in the courtroom. Sure. And the rest of it is uh, doing what we do, uh, you know, either, you know, meeting with clients or taking depositions or writing briefs or researching the law or, you know, doing what needs to be done in order to position the case for, for trial. Sure. So how often is kind of some of the stuff kind of changing? Because especially kind of on the on the technology front like obviously it's years ago now but kind of that like famous apple samsung case where you know apple was suing samsung because they thought they ripped off their phone and whether whoever side you're on doesn't really matter but like how often is kind of technology kind of changing the law or is the law still kind of pretty far behind or a bit of both or or kind of what's your thoughts on that um, well, uh, you know, I think that, you know, obviously technology is always changing and the law uh, does a pretty good job of uh, adapting to okay. kind of meet today's current needs, but it does lag behind. And sure. so that's the, la the lag is what provides opportunities for people to kind of push the envelope and, you know, kind of see what they can and can't get away with. And, you know, um, examples of this kind of happen, uh, you know, recently in the television and cable space where, you know, you have new technologies that are trying to get people away from, you know, traditional wired cable boxes and, and allow people to view content, um, you know, where, wherever they want, uh, sure. however they want, without, without necessarily paying for it. And, and so the, those type of issues come up and, and, you know, there's not always a clear answer under the law, whether that's uh, allowed or not. And, and that's what creates new law. And that's kind of how the um, the process goes, and, and um, so that the law is always, I think, a step or two behind the technology, but um, it's, a, it's a symbiotic relationship in the sense that they kind of keep pushing each other to, to grow, and, and that's what causes the evolution. No, I, I think that's great, and I was just kind of curious to get your, your thoughts on that, because obviously it's got to be behind, because stuff's getting kind of pushed forward, but I'm, I'm just, I was curious to know how, how fast they try to catch up, and that's pretty, that's interesting. So, we're, we're kind of coming to the end of the show, and I, and I know you're going to be at the, the Media X Awards kind of in January there. 
what exactly is your involvement with that? And uh, have you have you kind of been to the event before? Because it's the tenth year, I, as I understand it. Yeah, I know this is the tenth year, and um, you know what? It's my first year, and I'm really okay. excited to be there. And I, I I've uh, been asked to uh, be one of the judges for the awards, and Very so. Cool. Uh, you know, yeah, it's uh, it's it's really exciting, and um, I've heard a lot of great things about the awards, and and so I'm excited to participate. Sure. So, what are you judging? Do you have certain categories you're judging, or you're kind of judging uh, across the uh, across all of them, or how does that kind of work? Uh, yeah, I've been assigned uh, particular categories to to judge, and uh, you know, I'm I'm not sure how much of the judging process I can get uh, I can disclose, but sure. um, I've been assigned a, a few of the categories and uh, have reviewed the submissions, and and uh, I'm looking forward to uh, you know meeting the people responsible for creating the technology and and for you know participating in the awards and kind of seeing the other side of it. No, I I think that's really great. So. Let's maybe close the show with mentioning where people can get more information about yourself and the firm and where they can kind of check you guys out in L.A. or, or New York. Yeah, sure. So um, our website is www.stalwartlaw.com. It's S-T-A-L-W-A-R-T law.com. And uh, in uh, L.A., we're, uh, we're in Westwood here, not far from the UCLA campus. Nice. And uh, in New York, we're right in Union Square area, so uh, kind of by uh, NYU and, and Washington Square. That's so, very cool. Uh, always happy to hear from people, and, and Kevin, I appreciate your time. Yeah, I really appreciate you taking the time out of your, your busy day to be on the show, and I look forward to keeping in touch with you and uh, seeing you at the Media Awards in January. I'll see you there. All right. Thanks, man. Have a good, good day. Bye. You too. Thanks for listening. Please visit the show's website at buildingthefutureshow.com. Also check us out on Facebook at Building the Future Show and follow us on Twitter at Building Show. The music for the show is done by Electric Mantra. You can check him out at electricmantra.com and keep building the future.